I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If you're listening to this podcast, you're most probably listening through a pair of headphones, which means I have the perfect sponsor with the perfect product for you. It's Studio, and they want to revolutionize the way people see headphones. Generally, fashionable headphones tend to lack the proper sound quality and the high-tech ones are bulky and not design-orientated. Studio bridge that gap while emphasizing sleek, modern Scandinavian design. To get a 15% discount on any of their wares, go to studiosweden.com, which is spelled S-U-D-I-O Sweden.com, and simply put in the code DTD when purchasing a pair of headphones. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. In an uncertain world, there is always music which can be listened to in good company. Welcome to Friday 15, the show where we speak to friends and interesting people to the backdrop of great tunes and allocate 15 minutes to both. Today we speak to political author Eric Fogg about the history of political thinking. The Lovebirds and Steve Down's intoxicating house pop ditty Want You In My Soul hits you like a fully formed steamroller. Its heavy bass and live vocals are a total delight. Future's something we can barely see. Something missing in the way we feel. And I have noticed in myself that I can let it go. Wanna make a difference and believe in what we're gonna show. Gotta understand how things could be this way You make a difference in a different way And I've been feeling I show you love for me so easily Now I know how we could be forever all in time Give me something, I can feel it in my soul When it comes to loving you, I lose my self-control Always knew that this was it and you're gonna be the last Never see the future coming, we can't forget the past. Want you in my soul, I want you in my soul. Said I want you in my love soul. Love to me is gold, love to me is gold. You love to me is gold. Thing I can't control, thing I can't control, thing I can't control. Let the feeling go, let the feeling go, let the feeling go. Want you in my soul. Past is been, but we can't let it go. Looking back on all the things we've done And I have noticed in myself I could have changed it all Gonna make a difference in believing what we all show Gotta stand alone and try to lead the way
in a world where there is no communism really worthy of the name anymore, let's forget North Korea, let's forget China, there aren't really any competing political theorems anymore. We're all just liberal capitalists and we're only really arguing about globalization and how fast and how pernicious it is. Am I right? Am I wrong? Is political theory dead? Oh boy! Oh, uh, this is this is a good question. I'm sure you're familiar with the book uh, "The End of History" by Fukuyama. Um, absolutely, Francis Fukuyama. Great book at the end of the eighties. Yes. So here's what I think. I think that unequivocally, unequivocally is always a dangerous word. I think it's very hard to argue that you're wrong. That there's no viable alternative. For well, we've got another fifteen minutes worth of an interview to fill. Well, so, think, so you, you need to say. I think it's. I think it's more interesting than you're saying, right? Okay. Because people could say, you know, well, what about stuff like Islamic theory of governance? There is an Islamic theory of governments. Uh, governance. One way that Islam is different from other Abrahamic religions is that it is fundamentally supposed to be. A government. There's supposed to be a caliphate, right? Whereas Christ didn't say, "Hey, maybe the Pope should run everything." He said, "Let under Caesar what is Caesar's." And so there is a there mm-hmm. is a inherently political element to Islam that is in a number of countries. I mean, we have Islamic republics. I think that they are not interesting political theory alternatives. They happen to be the way that people are doing things right now. Kind of in the same way that there are some countries that are just kind of brutal dictatorships, but I don't think that this political theory is going to compete with liberal capitalism in any way. So you're making a very strong argument, which a lot of extreme right wing fringe groups say, is that Islam is an existential threat to liberal Western democracies, and and it goes beyond just political thought. That really, it's a, a clash of civilizations. Yes. So those are sort of the two books from the late '90s that. That set the debate for how we think about how the 21st century is going to go. Right? Is it clash of civilizations, or is it Fukuyama's end of history, where liberal capitalism just rules the day and everything's fine?、Um, I don't think that Islam is a particularly potent threat to liberal democracy in the way that communism was.、Uh, in part because I think communism is a much more attractive ideology to people. Um, it's it's sort of got a case to make for why you should be a communist in a way that Islam doesn't. Here's the really strong case I'm going to make. The strong case I'm going to make is that、mm-hmm. um, is is not that Islam is a particularly interesting alternative political ideology,、uh, and that we should be worried about it because I I don't see Islamic theory spreading in any way, right? Or is, it's not like you go to you know Hungary or something and they're considering. The Islamic Party for their governance. No, they're just various forms of conservative liberal and and social liberal and, and stuff like that. But where we are right now, I would make the case is not the end of history. And it is, you know, you asked, is political theory dead? I think it's kind of on vacation. And here's why I think that. I think historically, we have seen periods, particularly in the East. And the West. Now you might say that's everything, but I sort of mean those areas that were under the influence of Chinese political thought, and essentially those areas that were under the influence of a mix of Athenian and Christian political thought. So you think of Europe, you think of China. In China, they had the idea that there also wasn't much in the way of political thought or political theory, except between sort of one form of legalism and one form of Confucianism, which is not quite legalism, but it's just as hierarchical. Where The ultimate idea is just well, just do what you're told, and that's that's the political theory of China for thousands of years. 
And in the West, what had happened was after the fall of Rome. But one second, just so I understand what you're saying about China, because I thought that Chinese political thought wasn't just do as you're told, but that uh, the interests of the group have much more weight than the interests of the individual. <sighs> kind of. Chinese political thought has always had anti-individualist and collectivist strains of some sort. However, I caution that characterization of it because it implies the, the more Marxist twist of it pretty strongly. So when if you say like, oh, Chinese political thought is about the group, people are like, oh, that means taking care of people. And for thousands of years, it was just not a priority. It was sort of about China, not the state, but the civilization, like as the primary good. The peasants be damned. Like you, your job as a peasant is to is to serve, right? Is to sort of is to follow the code of either Confucius, where you are subservient to those above you in this hierarchy, or in legalism, where you're subservient to the law qua the law, uh, because that is what is good. And so there's obviously collectivism, collectivism involved, but not in the modern post-liberal sense of collectivism, where the point of collectivism is to help the majority or or everyone survive. So, so um, okay. I don't think that's a and, and as you said earlier, like China is not a particularly interesting alternative either. In part because they've left that and they they're becoming increasingly capitalist and liberal with a with a bit of a red lipstick on it. The thing that makes me think that things are likely to continue changing is that if we place ourselves through all sorts of different parts of history, we might have thought that ah yes, okay, now we've made it to the end, we've reached this stable point. Only because we can't see what's coming next. A good example is in the sort of post-Charlemagne period. Um, so after Charlemagne unites essentially France, Germany, creates the Holy Roman Empire with the Pope. Mm -hmm. You look at medieval Europe, and there's one political philosophy, and that political philosophy is that monarchies are the the only way of doing things, and it's because each monarch has a divine mandate from God, who we all believe in now, right? We're Europeans. We all believe in this Catholic way of doing things. Mm -hmm. And they have a divine mandate. How can you possibly challenge that? And then this guy, some guy, Gutenberg, creates a printing press, and then people start getting ideas, and then Martin Luther nails a piece of paper to a wall, and it all blows up. But I don't think anyone could have seen it coming. And so the reason I think we are on a break is because is because I think that it's too easy to take a short period of time that we're in now and say, oh, things have been this way. You know, people have been agreed on this for 50 years, 100 years, and I can't imagine anything else in the future. And therefore, it's not going to change. I think the only thing history can truly teach us that we can say for certain is that things will change and be very different. Uh, and we're not going to see it coming. Talking about change and not seeing things coming, the French Revolution was definitely one of those markers in Absolutely. in world history that, with the uh, with the benefit of hindsight, we could completely see it coming. But King Louis and Marie Antoinette definitely didn't see it coming in 1789, which takes us to a big. A revolutionary figure in terms of not necessarily in terms of political thought but in terms of putting the idea of nationalism into the hearts and into the minds of European nations whether they were French or whether they were German or whether they were Italian that's Napoleon which is a long-winded roundabout way Eric Fogg of me saying why have you chosen Tchaikovsky's 1812 overture as your piece of music this week that's a great question. There are a bunch of negative reasons and and a few good positive reasons. The negative reasons are some of my favorite music. I would have to take too long to explain why it's interesting because I'd say, oh, it's this. You'd be like, what's that? Be like, okay, well, this guy is this really weird, obscure metal artist, blah, 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 blah. 
But the eighteen twelve overture, our listeners can actually they are like, yeah, I've heard of that. I've heard the cannons going off as part of music because Tchaikovsky said a cannon can of course be an instrument. Just hold my vodka and watch. Mm-hmm. The reason I picked the eighteen twelve overture is I want to one share a little bit of not trivia about it, but something I tend to think about. Americans love the eighteen twelve overture, right? We play it every Fourth of July. We get that part. We're all really excited because the fireworks are coming at the part. We're going to go right, and the fireworks are going, and and we feel all patriotic. We wave some flags. It's great. And the weird thing is, as I was listening to that, this this is when I was young. I, I realized this guy's name was Tchaikovsky. And I was like, that's mm-hmm. a very Russian name, especially for 1812 United States. Like, If he wrote this in 1812, there weren't many Russians in the United States at the time. So what the heck was going on? And I learned that, uh, no, it's a Russian song. And it's about, as you implied, the invasion or by Napoleon of Russia and the repelling of Napoleon by Russia. And has absolutely nothing to do with the United States 1812 war, which didn't go all that well, mind you. So it's not exactly the war that we should be saying, you know what, every 4th of July when we celebrate our independence, we're going to remember the 1812 war where Canada came down and burned the White House to the ground. And we're going to play a Russian song about beating the French. I love this song so much. It gets me so fired up, especially because I have all these memories as a child. I can barely think of a more absurd song that we could manage to wedge into the American image of our own independence. Incredibly patriotic, almost jingoistically anti-French, pro-Russian, and made it our own is something that I was about to say I'll never know, but I'm sure that if I actually did my research, I could find out.
talk about a big piece of music. Big, and in terms of uh, at the end of medieval Europe, was the Renaissance. How important is somebody like Machiavelli? See what I did there, clever links. How important is somebody like Machiavelli in terms of um, European political theory? I think that's a great question. One of the things I love about Machiavelli, and, and you've tied this back to the beginning, is that Machiavelli echoes Aristotle when he says that he believes that all pure forms of government ultimately fall. And the way that they do it is a state generally starts off with a monarch and the monarch is noble because everyone followed him because he's a great guy and he protected the state or the people and united it. And then generations down the line, the monarch becomes corrupt and self-serving. And so they're overthrown by the aristocracy and they're noble at first. So you think the first wave of the French Revolution, you have nobles who are like giving up their land and giving up their titles or sorry, their privileges, ending feudalism. Mm -hmm. uh, and then eventually, and they run it well because they know why they had to overthrow the monarch because he'd been corrupt. But then generations down the line, they become corrupt. And then the people overthrow the aristocrats and they have strong civic duty, which is something that is at least part of the American story that, you know, early Americans had a very strong civic spirit, but then that degrades and then the people become selfish and petty. And what eventually happens is that the democracy breaks down for the same reason that the aristocracy and monarchy did and eventually is replaced by a monarch. And so if there's anything that I think is a portent that is sort of a foreshadowing of what may be to come as the age of liberal capitalism begins to be questioned, I think Machiavelli points the way saying democracy might rip itself apart and then people are going to start thinking about alternative ways of organizing us so that we don't do this to ourselves again. Are there any models we can look back before Western civilization kind of put its jackboot, and I mean that in the nicest possible mm. way, across different civilizations? So is there anything that we can look, look back at the way that the Aztecs or the Mayan or let's say various African community societies actually govern themselves, uh, which maybe might give us some pointers or at least some things that we can actually learn for the future as we go into this post-industrial information age where it's all about our iPhones and it's all about uh, conspicuous consumption. Yeah, there really has been throughout history such a massive plethora of different political systems and underlying theories for it or for them. Um, one of them is, of course, we can think of many Native American tribes that were to some extent ruled, but ruled is the wrong word. It was largely like counseled and governed you know, by elders, right? So people who had developed the most wisdom were the ones that were telling people, this is the way you should probably go about doing things. And they didn't need strict codes of laws because everyone was so on board with this idea and said like, yeah, this makes sense. And I know this person, you know, I know this elder, so I, I trust them and I've, I've learned to trust them that people just went along with it. And the few people that didn't, they were socially ostracized. You know, in these cases, you have forms of anarchy mixed with elder rule or elder consulship that people just socially accepted. There's a lot of political systems from, I mean, Africa, Southeast Asia, Oceania, South America, tons of tribes in North America that ran things very differently from the groups I'm thinking of that, you know, I have sadly not studied. But one of the things I think that's very interesting about a lot of them is that the idea of strict hierarchy is, is just very inconsistent, in particular among pre-Western groups. 
I say inconsistent because some places like the Maya, I mean, you had a God King, right? Like, there's just no questioning it. And God King was like, you die now. And you were like, okay, I guess this is happening. And so there, it ran across this big spectrum. Can I predict what the future is going to need? No. And the thing that complicated democracy is the fact that we have a much more interconnected world. We have a world where right now, certainly government is expected to do far more for people in material ways than ever has had to do before and expected to solve a lot more problems than it ever has before. You know, and so like, can a somewhat anarchistic system work? Who knows, right? Just on that, right, just as we start to wrap up, Mm. right, as a Brit, I'm listening to you say, you being an American, that we're asking government to do much more than we ever have done before in the past. And that's not the case in Britain, that actually we are slowly but surely winding back the state. And surely that the high point of state intervention in our societies was the late 70s. And really, aren't we pairing back government throughout the West and actually saying to private enterprise, help us out here? It's a great challenge. Yeah. I was thinking of such a long period here, like, oh, over the past 5,000 years, you know, compared to compared to 100 <laughs> years ago, 500 years ago, yes, they're obviously doing a lot more. But I think your point of have we reached a turnaround is very important because, of course, whenever you look at a graph, you know, we say we see some graph of like level of government intervention and we're like, oh, it, it's way higher than it was back there. But hey, it's been trending down for a bit. You can either look at that and say, hey, that's a bump. And it's going to keep going up or, hey, that's kind of a little bit of a readjustment and it's going to be stable and we've reached this end of history and this is where it goes. Or, hey, it's turning around and we're starting to hand off a lot of responsibility to other institutions that are non-governmental, that don't have the force of law behind them. It's going to be hard to guess which one of the ways it goes, because even if we hand off a little bit to corporations or to to the market now to solve, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be this sea change, this major shift away from what we think of as, you know, social democratic capitalism, where the government exists to make sure generally that people are taken care of and they get to vote on it. But it could also be a sign that in particular, if we start to see democracy break down and fall apart, what are going to be the strongest institutions that are there to pick up the pieces? It's going to be a number of very wealthy people, but two unlike in the past, very wealthy, very strong, very capable organizations that command a whole lot of resources. And what would happen if the United States lost faith in its own government, in particular DC, and suddenly the most kind of influential, beloved, powerful organization on earth was Google. That is a, that's a real possibility. Eric Fogg, thank you for coming on to Friday 15. This has been the show where I've asked the least amount of questions. You can talk, sir. We haven't even done John Locke, industrialization, the European Enlightenment. There are loads of things we've missed out, but you've been a total star. But thank you for telling us that we all need to look forward to a world of Facebook government. There we go. Uh, so take care, pal. We'll see you again soon because we're going to have to drill into this yeah, again. Yeah, of course. It was a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, I'll talk to you all guys soon. And thanks again, Royfield. I need to remind you that we are part of the Agora Podcast Network. It's a network of some 25 independently produced podcasts. So why don't you go to agorapodcastnetwork.com 
and um, go and search out a brand new podcast for your podcasting ears. This month, our podcast of the month is Beyond the Big Screen by Stephen Guerra. So if you want to know the true stories behind your favourite movies, the real facts and the background are often much more interesting and complex than you might think. Um, Stephen interviews people who are incredibly passionate about a specific film or a genre. They are great interviews. So why don't you take a listen to Behind the Big Screen on a podcatcher of your choice. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. On with the show. Nineteen seventy-two was a high point for Stevie Wonder. The horns blaring superstition is a funk so track from his purple period. This is the Todd Terje re-edit. Very superstitious. 
hope you enjoyed this week's show. Don't forget, you can follow the show's progress on Facebook by simply typing in Friday 15. You can also find us on Twitter, where you can follow me. Where I'm at Royfield, spelled R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D. Now, every Thursday, you can jump onto Twitter and tweet me and nominate a song for me to put into this week's Friday 15. iTunes reviews, folks, are extremely important. They're the lifeblood of any podcast. Please go onto iTunes and write us a, a glowing review. And don't forget, finally, you can email me from Royfield, spelled R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D, at gmail.com. See you all again in seven days' time for more good music and great conversation. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.